Carrie Miller. We're here at Castle Danger Brewery in Two Harbors, Minnesota, with a room full of good, lively, opinionated citizens, and a lot of good people who are serving the community, too, with a lot of great ideas. So I know this is going to be a lively conversation about affordable housing. This town hall is part of an ongoing series called The Rural Voice, and we are really grateful for the support of our sponsors. They've made it possible. The Northland Initiative Foundation, the Otto Bremer Foundation, Compeer, the Center for Rural Policy and Development, Minnesota Public Radio, and Cherry Road Media. Tim Penny, the former congressman, kicked the whole thing off in January of 2022 when he complained to my friend over there that the media just really didn't care about rural issues. And she said, oh, contraire, Tim, you need to think big. So here we are with you. We're in season two of The Rural Voice. Here's how it works. We travel to rural towns in the Midwest. We gather a group of committed citizens together, and then we listen as you use creativity and imagination and dedication to find solutions for challenges that confront the community. So we want to hear great ideas, solution-based kinds of suggestions, and your stories about what it, your own personal experience, about what this has been like to try to find housing, uh, friends who have wanted to move here, employers who are trying to get people to move here. So I am all about the anecdote, and I will also tap into the expertise in the room as well. So it's a challenge, of course. Affordable housing is a challenge that many, many communities are confronting. We think when this airs on Minnesota Public Radio, there will be many people in other towns that find common cause with what we're talking about tonight. Of course, without affordable housing, you can't attract a vibrant workforce, you can't support entrepreneurs, or keep young families in the area, or nourish the deep community roots that senior citizens have planted. But there simply is not enough affordable housing in the state of Minnesota. I've been talking to some of you before we've gotten started, and I know that is a situation that is occurring here. So we're here because Two Harbors is a community in a region that I know is debating and experimenting with some intriguing housing uh, potential ideas. But I think the area around the community is also wrestling with this. Maybe somebody up in Silver Bay has a great idea, the Two Harbors wants to hear, et cetera, et cetera. So I will be talking to people from throughout the region. I want to hear from families who are on the hunt for a great house or an apartment that they can afford. I want to talk about proposals for senior living, like the one that has been discussed in Crystal Bay Township, I want to hear from senior citizens who are worried that they may not be able to afford their housing. And I'd love to hear from anybody who knows of a family member, I think this applies to Kitty, who would like to move here and just cannot find an affordable place to live. So we're going to talk about zoning and how permitting affects this. We're going to hear from people who are afraid that they're being priced out of the homes that they own. So... I have a question for anyone who lives in the region who right now 
or maybe over the course of the last year or so, has been out there trying to find an affordable house or apartment. Can you tell me what it's been like? Kitty? If you'll raise your hand. All right. Yes. Yes, sir. Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Carrie. I'm I'm Paul Peltier. I'm the executive director of an organization called RAMS. It's the Range Association of Municipalities and Schools. Uh, The whole TAA is a seven-county region in the northeastern part of Minnesota here. And uh, for the last 15 years, I've been a band and choir teacher at small rural schools in Minnesota. And when this job opened up, I thought, great, it's going to be awesome. But uh, going from a house that we had with a 2.5% mortgage to now a new house in a new community with a over 7.5% mortgage is a really big burden for us and our four kids. My wife and I, we have four kids. Um, and we chose to live in the city of Virginia, which is undergoing a major housing uh, anti-Renaissance. It's really hard to find a house in Virginia. We had three homes that we could possibly afford that were um, purchased not by us, but straight up with cash way before we could even attempt to close on it. And uh, we had to rely on my parents, who are over 65, to help us out and even come close to closing a deal in a timely fashion. Um, the, the Iron Range and the Taconite Assistance Area is the seven-county northeastern area of Minnesota. And housing needs a big bet. Housing needs a major moonshot right now. And the more we can come together, realize that everybody's problem is everybody's problem, we're going to solve it together. Paul, excellent. It's almost like I planted you there. That was so good. (laughs) My God. Uh, Greg, I'm coming over to you because you are an employer, a pretty big employer in the area. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Greg Gruberg, CEO of Lakeview Hospital here in Two Harbors. I'm also the VP at St. Luke's in Duluth. Uh, Here in Two Harbors, we employ about 150 people, and we've had a couple of recent uh, challenges. Number one, workforce. I could talk about for two hours, but I'll spare you those discussions. Um, But what comes along with workforce is housing. So we have growth plans in our future, uh, both to stabilize both uh, Two Harbors and Silver Bay, and then grow and add additional services in Two Harbors. I'm really concerned about our ability to do so around workforce, number one. And then number two, if we're fortunate enough to hire somebody in a specialty like an infusion therapy clinic or a surgery department, them finding a house is is very difficult. I'll share two examples. We have a new physician we just hired at our clinic. We recruited about a year and a half ago, signed and waited for that person to start. Now they're looking for a house in Two Harbors, and and they can't find one. So they want to start a family. And he said the same thing that Paul said is he's made a couple of offers to find out pretty quickly that he's been outbid with cash only, inspections waived, and they're told him, "You're, you're out of luck. Go look somewhere else. So that has not worked. Our goal is always to get our providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, surgeons to live in our community, to support our community. They're forced to live in Duluth and surrounding areas and, and drive here, and we hope that they stay. We hope that they kind of, uh, kind of weather the storm and find a house that they want. The second challenge we had is we hired a nurse, and RNs are very difficult to come by now for all areas, med surge, surgery, infusion. We had a nurse signed, signed took a signing bonus, started with us, had a house all set to go uh, between Two Harbors and Duluth, was outbid with a cash-only offer after failing at many other attempts, finally took a job about 50 miles away and said, I'm done, I can't make the drive, I'm moving to that community and trying to find a a place there. So again, we went back to a travel nurse to fill that opening, and they also need short-term housing, which is difficult. So even when you have one problem come up, that problem gets bigger, you have another problem to face as well. So We're really kind of tempering our growth and services right now until things stabilize in terms of workforce and housing. So Great. Thank you very much. I'm going to come over here to Kirsten, a smaller employer, 
but you're having a similar challenge, it sounds like. Kirsten, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. We have, my husband and I have three, basically um, two retail businesses and one small manufacturing business. We apply, employ about 30 people, and it's a lot of um, younger people who like the active lifestyle, and they're, some have a hard time finding um, land to buy, to build. You know, I feel like 30 years ago, we could move up to Two Harbors or to any rural northern Minnesota community and buy some land and build a house, and that is just so much more challenging right now for young couples and young families to, to have that dream. And um, they, people need a lot of family support to, to work. Um, I think, you know, the jobs that, that we can offer. And um, we, we just would like to see some creative solutions to that. I think what's surprising about this is people think, oh, I'll get out of the cities. The costs will be cheaper There'll be much more available. I'll, I'll live this kind of, yes, Paul is laughing at that. Um, I'll live this kind of life that you can't have in the cities. And it sounds like, in some ways, the dream up here is, is kind of closing to people who would like to do it. Who would like to say something about that? Let me come over here. Yes, Kelly. Tell me your situation. Hi, I'm Kelly Swearingen. and I live up the shore in Grand Marais. Welcome to the Malibu of the north of Minnesota, right? Um, yeah, I think I was born and raised in Grand Marais, went away to college and accidentally came back, and I've worked at a great job there for 28 years at North Shore Health. Um, we, again, like Greg, suffer from finding employees who can move there. Our housing market has basically gone out to VRBO and second homes, I can't fault anybody for selling their house for cash, right? Any one of us would probably do that if we had the opportunity, more than likely, because we try to better ourselves. But what it's doing is killing our communities. If you follow Grand Marais, we were noticed as the coolest small town in America about five years ago. We now just were noticed by Travel and Leisure magazine as one of the best small towns, um, I think, anywhere in the United States. So we get a lot of publicity, and there's kind of one way in and one way out we tease if you're not coming through Canada, and that's all the way up this beautiful landscape that we live in, but it's at a cost. And anybody who wants to live here, anybody who does live here is struggling to do that. The house I purchased in 2004, although we've made some generous repairs to it, I could sell for three times, if not more, what I bought it for in 2004, and that scares me. My 27-year-old son bought a house two and a half years ago. Luckily, um, he'll decide whether he stays or leaves eventually because the jobs aren't keeping up with the costs. Our city council just set a preliminary levy at 7.19%. Our county set a levy at 9%. Our hospital just did their tax levy at an increase of $250 million. Um, And when we have people who come from outside the area, second homes or VRBOs, they get irritated at paying some of those bigger costs, even though they paid $1.2 million in cash for their home. Um, you know, our hospital has been called a Band-Aid station. I don't feel that way, and I don't think anybody who really came there would feel that way, but we're all struggling. And I don't know what the answer is. I have a few ideas. You know, I worked with city council for three years there as well, but it's going to take more than one solution. 
and it's going to take more than one group to figure this out. Okay, so now I'd like to hear from some people who have been working on this housing issue for a while. Um, I know there's a lot of people from the Housing uh, Redevelopment Authority. Who can I talk to about... Yes, I see you, Jason. I'm coming back there. All right, introduce yourself, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, I'm Jason Hale. I'm the executive director of the Cook County Housing Redevelopment Authority. Hello, Kelly. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, that's who I am. I used to work for the city of Luthen Housing as well, so I've uh, been working on housing up the shore for about 10 years. So obviously this isn't new to you. I think what we're really here to talk about is who's bringing some imagination, who's bringing some ideas, and the money, maybe, to solve some of what we're hearing, and is it going to move fast enough? A lot of questions for you, but just reflect a little bit on what we've heard so far. Well, I don't think it's going to move fast enough. Uh, We needed the housing 20 years ago. Um, So with regard to the... I have to acknowledge we have uh, Representative Scraba and uh, Senator uh, Hochschild here. Thank you both. We've had a historic year at the Capitol for funding for housing. The sort of catch-22 of that situation is... We can put more money toward the problem, which we absolutely need. But what that doesn't do is solve the workforce issue with building the housing. So um, we can, I saw this a couple, last week I was talking to a colleague in Duluth I was working on a project, and they were getting quotes back for about 400000 a unit for modest townhomes for an affordable project. Um, as you go further up the shore, it gets more expensive because you're further away from logistics, distribution, so folks are nodding their head because they know as you get closer to Canada, <laughs> which Cook County is as close as you can get, um, it gets harder and harder. You, like you commented earlier, you would think, oh, it gets cheaper. No, it's not the case. Especially up here, we have a lake, bedrock, swamp, more or less, and clay um, in the good spots. So I, I think it does take creative solutions. I know that um, our community is looking at doing some of those things. And, and frankly, just for two seconds, I think we have to look at this more regionally. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of small towns in this beautiful part of the country, in the state, um, that need housing, but there aren't, there isn't the bandwidth locally. There's not the capacity from a city or county level. People don't have the time or resources or expertise to do that. And we need to figure out a way to leverage the need a little more broadly to come up with solutions like here's a 40-unit housing footprint that can get approved and fast-tracked, and we get a development team that goes and builds 10 of them mm-hmm. in these 10 small towns. Like, we've got to think a little bit bigger than we have been. Okay, so let's linger on that for a moment. That's a really interesting idea. How would that kind of collaboration work um, regulation-wise and financial-wise? Right. He chuckles knowingly. Yeah, that's the, the I don't know, billion-dollar question at the Capitol this last year. Um, I would just, I guess, try to succinctly say that there is will. I think we're all here for a reason. There's a will to do this. Um, I know that the capital, we're trying to get creative. I know locally, I've talked with a number of colleagues about this conceptually, this idea of how do we, how do, we do more modular, for example. Uh, there's a finite amount of people to build. There's a, and and we're, we're all competing for the same small pool of resources. So I think if there is the will to do it, uh, we just have to kind of get over some territorial, parochial, maybe uh, arbitrary boundaries that we've created and realize how do we do this for a region. And I'm selfishly looking at northeast Minnesota. The whole state needs it. I grew up in southern Minnesota. I get it. Um, they're great. Uh, I'll worry about that later. Right now, though, in northeast Minnesota, I think we need to look at maybe it's a TAA. We can draw whatever boundaries you want. I don't care. But I think the will is there. The need is finally recognized now more than ever. And there's a lot of communities that are saying, what do we need to do differently? 
you know, some, I'll come back. Some of what I'm hearing is knock down some of the silos that happen between municipalities and think about this on a broader sense. I'm going to come over here to Matthew. Uh, introduce yourself, if you will. Matthew Johnson, Lake County HRA director. What do you think when you hear Jason say, hey, there's a, there's a way, but it's going to require some creative thinking, and it's going to require municipalities to say, for the greater good, we're going to lift some of these regulations and do things differently. I love that idea. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my take on this is this, there's no one solution here. Uh, we need single-family housing of all income levels. Um, the, uh, the average house um, in the Duluth area that was built only 30 years ago, four bedrooms, two baths, is $469,000. The old mindset is that we're working with low and moderate income households. That's one of our goals, but we're also trying to get all levels of housing moving. And you're seeing multiple stakeholders come to the table offering assistance, whether it's land or grants or some sort of financial support from major employers. There's in order to pull off these developments, it's, it's multiple people that are putting money on the table. Okay. Let me, let me ask you to pause there for a minute. Do we have any seniors in the room tonight who are concerned about housing, you know, kind of getting too expensive to stay, or you're looking for senior housing? Ma'am? Yeah. I thought you might have a story. <laughs> you are Kathy. Right. Okay. Um, my story is right now I got a nice place to live. I live on an apartment on Lower Lane. But the only way I can afford it is because my sister lives there too. She's 10 years older than me and she has dementia. Uh, when she gets to the point where I can't take care of her, I'm going to have to find a different place. And I cannot afford Lower Lane. Um, I guess I, I don't know what to do because if I apply for uh, an apartment and get it, like uh, Bayview, um, do I put my sister in a, in a nursing home right away even though she's not ready to go into one or what do I do? I mean, um, I just don't know right now, so I just... Close my eyes and pretend it's not happening. I want to come over to Lacey. Tell me a little bit about your story. Sure. I moved to Ely in 2019. I had been living in St. Paul. My background professionally is in higher education. I'm from Hutchinson, Minnesota, so I know rural. And when my husband got a job at Paragus Northwoods Company, I was like, yes. I didn't know Ely, but I know rural. There wasn't a job in my field available, but I got really involved with the folk school, and so I'm the board chairperson of the Ely Folk School, and I teach Slovenian Petitza, if anyone wants to take that class. <laughs> um, I manage a program called Boundary Waters Connect, which is grassroots economic and community development. I host a weekly educational forum called Tuesday Group, and we've hosted, I think it's 12 or 13 Meet New Eliites sessions in the last two years. We're seeing a big influx of new residents, and they're young people, 
They're willing to work gig economy jobs. They're willing to work seasonal jobs, but they're lacking housing. And I see, like, from my vantage point, the Ely Folk School is a school, and the folk school movement is rooted in helping the peasantry be resilient. So I'm like, what qualifies as a modern-day American peasant? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I do wonder about the regulations and, and what creative solutions could happen between my economic development work and my role with the folk school. And could we have a group of people take a class on how to build an accessory dwelling unit that I could have in my backyard and I could house seasonal workforce, make a little cash, do it, you know, like... I, I think there's a creative solution, but it's so over my head, and it's really over the head of my colleagues. You know, like, I see what's possible, but I don't know how to get there. I want to take this back to um, Jason, because this is interesting. You know, people are saying, I could solve my little piece of the housing crisis if I built things in my backyard. Yeah. I mean... That's where we're at. Is that? Tell me whether that's part of a real solution. Maybe it is. I don't think there is a solution. Um, I, I think. Well, and I said part of. Yeah, yeah. yeah the larger solution. Larger, yeah, yeah. I just mean to say that I think that this is a patchwork quilt sort of uh, approach of. I mean, there's no silver bullet. Um, even like I said before, the money that the legislature gratefully approved for this, um, we need that. But that's one. Like, there's the money, there's the land, there's the bandwidth locally, there's, I mean, there's zoning, there's all these things. So there's the workforce, we could go on and on. Uh, Literally, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, But uh, I think that those, like, things like ADUs, like she was talking about, that is part of a potential solution, and that's something I think locally where communities like, like I work with people in Grand Marais who are looking at ADUs or Ely or any of these small, like, that's an option. The zoning has to allow it. Because you can want to do it, but if your town zoning doesn't allow it, right. I mean, zoning's not a sexy conversation topic, but it's a real thing that dictates what you can and can't do. What does zoning say about this right now in the county that we're in? Can you do that? Anybody know? Where's our county commissioner? He's hiding. There he is. Does, I mean, he's right that zoning isn't sexy, but boy, is it important when you're finding solutions. Does zoning let you do that? Yes, as long as your sewer system is built to the size to a, to take on another bedroom and, and your lot's large enough. Lacey, you're good. You're right. Okay. She lives in a different county. <laughs> so Jason just said it is, and I think we're, we're gathering this, it's a, it's a patchwork of solutions. But again, time is of the essence, right? How long have you lived in this county? Uh, my entire life. Okay. So do you have a sense that things are moving quickly enough? What would solve this, one part of this, in the next, let's say, 24 months? Is there anything? Well, uh, and thanks to our senator and our legislators this year, they put a lot of money into it. They are buttering you up like there's no tomorrow here. Well, we're going to be back for more. <laughs> But uh, in the last couple of years, it has, take just because of the need. We've met with our manufacturers and that, and they said housing's number one. They need it, and the county got behind it, and we're dedicating uh, quite a bit of money towards it, too. But there's one missing part, and it's been alluded to a couple of times here, 
and that was, uh, you know, the Malibu of the north, we could build a million houses and our children might never get a chance to buy them. So we have to get together as a community. Because they're too expensive. Right. There's, there's people all over the nation that are going to outbid us with cash. And where it's national news, if you want to go to where it's cool climate, get by the lake, you know, everything. We have everything that people want right here, and they just discovered it post-COVID. So here they come. And so we have to, as a community and as uh, uh, councilmen and, and commissioners and legislators, we have to come up with a way that we can control who actually gets to live in the houses that we build. Really? So if you want to buy a house for VRBO or you want to only be up here three months of the year, you're out of luck? Well, not necessarily, but that was the first thing that we tackled. And thanks to the, the municipalities in the area, they joined up with us and we put a limit on how many VRBOs we're going to have in the area because they were just swallowing up our, our housing stock. So, and they're, they're part of the ec economics of everything so you need to have some but not everything we don't want to be another veil where the whole town has to move just because we got bought out i, I should say as somebody who uses airbnb and vrbo um that you know that brings money into a community and that's good for the economic life of the community too you're hitting the balance right you're trying to find the balance that's exactly what we're trying to do, and I, I use them when I travel, too. But I use a hotel. That don't mean every building needs to be a hotel. So we got to find a balance there, and, and we're flexible with it. If, if our housing stock increases, the number of VRBOs can increase along with it. So we already have that worked into the plan. But we, we don't need to be investing taxpayers' dollars into housing stock for somebody to buy it for a VRBO or for a second or third home because it's in a beautiful area. We need it for the people that need to be working in this area to keep our communities vibrant. Okay. Yes, I thought I saw a hand. Did somebody raise their hand who wanted to add to that? I thought I, I saw that. Yes, sir, yes. Introduce yourself, if you will. Uh, Representative Roger Scrabb, I'm from Ely. Um, I used to be chairman of St. Louis County Planning Commission for like 12 years. Um, I was chairman of Ely's Planning Commission. Uh, to answer her question, uh, Lacey. Lacey's question uh, real quick is, <clears throat> if the zoning, if you have an R1, a residential one, you expect to have your yard, the neighbor's yard, in that. Um, the city of Ely passed a VRBO, 35 in an R1. That's all you can have. When they're gone, they're gone. And we put a tickler on it saying when you sell it, the permit doesn't go with it. You have to apply for the permit again. Um, that way you don't get permanent VRBOs everywhere when someone's out. Um, the, the problem with having little houses in the back of everyone's yard, it's no longer an R1. Now you're an R2 or a commercial. And, and it solves the housing problem, but it creates the my... I, I, I want to be by myself in my yard. And the neighbor says, oh, I need the money, I'm going to sell it. And pretty soon you have this mosaic patchwork. You either zone an area where RT, residential transition, and say that's what you're going to get. You know, you, there, there are ways around this. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Would there be a way to, in some of these communities where the pinch is especially sharp, 
to rezone areas and say, we're going to lift off a lot of the stuff that people complain about, even as they're complaining about not enough housing, and we're going to let, we're going to get creative on the zoning, and we're going to let some of these areas experiment with different kinds of affordable housing. Would it, yeah. would it work? Yes. I mean, and that's the whole idea of zoning. A zoning code is you sit and have your hearings, and you, you bring everyone together and say, are you willing to do this here, here, and here? But the people that live on the edges of the new zoned area are likely to come in and say, I don't want that in my backyard. Or they benefit from it because they can have it and, and the other person can't. It, it's a choice. You know, it's, and, and eventually it works out. You might have someone vehemently opposed. I mean, they're going through it tomorrow night on a rezoning in Ely about a, a conditional use permit of RVs that we allowed 20 years ago. People are turning off their radios right oh, now. <laughs> and, yeah, sorry. You know, but... But I'm watching, I'm watching this happen. And just to predicate, I go skiing every year for the last 28 years to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And, and I, get, I get the Jackson Hole paper. I tried to bring it up. Um, uh, housing development, the, the police, the fire, everyone can't leave and live in the city anymore. Um, uh, uh, when I was mayor of Ely, I was like, I will never let this happen to our community. And now I'm a representative, and I'm looking at Silver Bay, Grand Marais, Big Fork, International Falls, Ely, Cook, or they're all kind of what the, the commissioner said. People are coming up here going, hey, we love it here. And, you, you know, you, your, your point about uh, the VRBOs bring income and bring money, but so do workers, you know, and, and that's more every day. They're, they're here. <clears throat> they're the ones that keep our grocery stores going, our, our bars going. Thank you, yeah. Castle Danger. You know, but but uh, I mean, I mean, it really does. And Grand Marais, you know, I mean, I f- I feel for Grand Marais. I'm I'm coming up to speed uh, as someone, a mayor of Ely, and I I got a lot of experience. So when I go to Grand Marais and I listen to the people in Grand Marais, you know, I'm like, well, maybe we're going to have to go up because you can't go out. There's only three percent or seven percent of the land is uh, private. Ninety-three is public. Are you talking about building high rises? Yes. Not, not so much high-rises, but you can go to three or four stories instead of one or two. Let me, let me stop you there. Is that, a, is that a good answer? Kelly, I saw some cringing out there when he said that. Uh, it's, it's a part of an answer. Um, we have a moratorium, so they cannot go above, I think it's 34 feet, if I remember, from city council time. Uh, we did some changes in zoning. AUDs are allowed within the city limits now for that. Where I would like to see change happen is our mixed use allows VRBOs. I would like to take that out of the city limits, that if people want to come enjoy the area, then go enjoy the area outdoors, but maybe not make it so easy for them to be one block from downtown, let the people who work there want to walk to work, bike to work, whatever, be within the city because it's really not that big. So it's a part. Um, and I think, you know, the Lake County Commissioner, Jason, have all said there's so many parts and pieces, um, but they do take time, and that's the hard part, the frustrating part, because what I think works, he won't think works. He might have something different. She's going to say different. So it's trying to be accepting of all the ideas and seeing how they're going to mix for where you're at. 
And my idea and my solutions at my age is probably going to differ from somebody at Lacey's age or Steph's age. So it, there's a lot to it. There's no simple equation. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a Rural Voice Town Hall. We're at Castle Danger Brewery drinking some great beer. No, that's after the town hall. And um, we're in Two Harbors, and we're having a lively and, I think, imaginative discussion about how to try to solve um, affordable housing issues, the tight availability, how to get more built, what do you do about seniors who want to stay in the community, how do you satisfy the residents' vision of what affordable housing is and what a community should look like. So, good conversation here. I wanted to come back to you, Greg, um, from the hospital. So, so we've batted around some interesting ideas, but they still seem like they are kind of in progress. So, what is that going to mean for you? Well, there's a, a couple things that come to mind. The, the the one thing that you mentioned about affordable housing. What was eye-opening to me was talking to one of our physicians and knowing what physicians make in rural communities and him saying, I can't afford, the houses that, that's available, I just can't afford because of student loans and, and their age and all of that. So I think of all of our other workers who make less, it's just even more difficult than that. The other thing I think about over the last probably three or four years, we've actually thought about getting into housing as a medical provider. And that's not something I never thought I'd be having a discussion about. What I kicked myself over was a house that went for sale across the street from us, and I brought it to our board and said, should we buy this house? And a couple said, what are you talking about? Why would we buy a house? Um, we didn't because we're focusing on delivering you know, medical care in Two Harbors and Silver Bay, but that's how desperate we get to think if we purchase the house, we could allow our staff, we could subsidize them living there, either rentals or maybe a rental to purchase, but we don't have the resources in the healthcare industry to be purchasing houses. That's not our mission although it's related directly to it and the care that we can deliver. Okay, so going over here to State Senator Hochschild. Yeah, well, I would just say we have a history here in the Northland of having companies invest in housing. You know, the mining companies built Silver Bay, um, single-handedly built the houses for their workforce. I don't think it's an absurd idea to consider going to our companies, going to our industries and saying, hey, do you want a skin in the game and do you want to help us make these investments? Um, you know, we talked a lot about the state investments. That was an important piece. Um, we did $35 million for workforce housing, but I want to make sure that the Northland competes for that because it's statewide. And a lot of our rural communities, this is the most rural district in the state. I want to make sure Two Harbors and the other communities have access to that money. So we gave money to the Northland Foundation, one of the sponsors of this event, to help our rural communities acquire that funding at the state level. But I think it's not just funding to Jason's point, it's figuring out the regulatory side. I was a city councilor in Hermantown, and I will tell you nimbyism, not in my backyard, is a big challenge. And we have to address that and talk about it. If people don't want things in their backyard, if they don't want a new senior housing complex, if they don't want a new housing development, if they don't want, uh, you know, I'll admit I own the lot next to my house. Maybe it should be a house. Um, you know, there are opportunities for us to consider that. Lastly, I'll go to the third rail at the state level, which is 
what if we took the heat off of our city councilors and our county commissioners and did some zoning reform at the state level and said, you know what, Minnesota, I, I know in Washington state they've done similar moves like that where they have said there are certain zoning that we are just going to make statewide, certain lots, you can't go above this, you uh, need to allow English base basements, you need to do these certain things. Um, I'm not saying I am for that, I need to do more research, but it's a... But we're ah the research part of it. No, but I mean, it's it, we have to talk about the hard things and and zoning and, and figuring out how we do those things and talking about nimbyism is a big part of that. I, I was curious about the reaction in the room from the city council members and the other when he says, "Oh, we could handle this at the state." Rick, how's that sound? I would think my constituency would rather have it handled oh, close, yeah. but uh, that it, what would be nice is is if all of our electeds uh, from, from the township on up had uh, a little more uh, knowledge and leadership of it because you can't let just one person shut down a project just because it's close to their backyard. If the, if the community already chose the zoning to allow it in a certain spot, then it is what it is. That's where it needs to go. And so much happens now that every, you know, three, four people show up to a meeting and scream about something, everybody cowards under it, and the project gets shut down. Where we already established the zoning, follow it. That allows us to do what we need to do. I'm going to go over here to the mayor because he hasn't spoken yet, but maybe. And he has a lot to say, I'm sure. Okay, mayor, you've heard about some kind of, I think, interesting potential solutions, but you've also heard... How do we accelerate this? What are we going to do about people to say, well, I don't want that in my backyard? What's your over... Reflect for a minute on, on what you've heard so far and how optimistic you are that you're moving into Solutionville. Well, I, I certainly think that, that we've uh, established the demand that's, that's out there tonight. I'm, that's clear. The, the, the tricky part, as everybody's already talked about, is how we're going to, going to meet that. Um, a lot of things that, that I've heard, first of all, I, I applaud Phil and Tom and the work that they've done with this high school project. I, I, that was one of the first things that I had heard about when I, when I started as mayor about four months months ago, and I, th I just think that's a great, a great project. There's some, some hurdles to get over to, to, to do this, and, it, and that, that's important. We can't set that aside. And one, one of the things that I heard out there earlier is making sure that some of the, the either the zoning or some of the, the, the hoops that people have to run through um, from a council standpoint, from a, from a, a county standpoint, we start to consider what those are and how do we make, make it easier to, to get this thing to happen, to get the get these things to be built, I think that's one of the one of the key things that that we need to. And optimism wise, I'm optimistic, but it's it's not an overnight thing. This is going to take some time. Except that it sounds like a lot of this area is kind of out of time. Yes, let me come back here to. I mean, now it's affecting seriously affecting the economy, workforces, right? Yes, Paul. Thanks, Gary. On NIMBYism, um, once a community gets a reputation of being unworkwithable, there is such a target-rich environment of places that are ripe for housing, they don't need your town. They've got some other place that can go. 
So the more welcoming every community can be to lots of diverse kinds of development, even if they think they don't want those people or that kind of housing, the better off everyone is going to be because northern Minnesota cannot compete against the metro in terms of getting an, a, an attractive situation for a contractor. It has to be something where everything is, yes, what can we do to help you? What can we do to make this easier for you? What can we do to make this workable for our community and sustainable for the long term? Okay. Who else would like to comment on what we... Justin, I haven't talked to you yet. Hi. Um, so introduce yourself. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name's Justin Atzi. I'm a principal planner with ARDC and serve as the part-time planner for the City of Two Harbors. Which one of these ideas or cluster of ideas that we've heard today is really practical from your view? Um, <laughs> practical. Uh, Dead air. Sorry. Uh, you talk to the zoning administrator and you risk losing more listeners. Uh, <laughs> You know, there's been a lot of talk about different solutions. I think it's been nailed. There's not one. And, you know, time, it's hard to make up time. The reason we're in this problem is we've spent 20 years not building homes. And so we can't just wave the housing wand and have all these units immediately. Uh, it's a wicked problem. It's really difficult to solve. That's why we're all here tonight. Um, you know, I'm proud of what we've done in the city of Two Harbors. We've gotten rid of single or R1 zoning, there's no single family zoning in the city. Uh, we've allowed ADUs. You know, I think considerations around parking minimums is still impacting what's available. Uh, I know we're looking at different things like setbacks and you know, especially in the downtown area, could that expand what our options are? Um, there's trade-offs though too. And you know, just because we can build everything, we have to be thinking about our quality of the lake and the trade-offs that come with stormwater. Uh, it's not just quick, and I know that's not easy or not the best solution. Um, I mean, I started the question with practical. I think I see this throughout the whole region. That it's not. It's it's hard to try to think of a regional solution because who everybody wants to be first, right? Like you know, how would the city of Silver Bay feel if Two Harbors got the first house and the next one was coming down the line? You know, uh, that's where it sounds great, but it's hard in practicality. Paul, you had a, quite the reaction to that. Why? Because we have to create an environment where we create region-wide wins and we celebrate the good things that happen in every single community. You have to have the willpower to do it, the humility to accept it, and then the fortitude to pay it forward. Love that idea. One of the things that's very effective is when a smaller community hears the success stories from their neighbors it really does help motivate them. And, you know, uh, one of the areas that hasn't been discussed um, tonight is uh, the, the role that the nonprofits have. And I know One Roof is here, and, and they're very effective. And, and so I add them into the mix of, you know, local government, um, the planning and zoning needs to be set, the nonprofits need to be involved, the developers have to come to the table and, and put together. I mean, sometimes when you ask a developer to have four of their 40 into low and moderate income so that you can feed that it's painful and and others will gladly do it the i was curious about how open the developers that you and that you'd like to have working in in the region are to this idea that they also have to balance what they're willing to come in and build in the cities there's a lot of resistance to that 
My take on it is it seems like developers realize that uh, the price of yes means that a little bit of compromise goes a long ways. I'm seeing that open up. Uh, and it, it, traditionally, a developer would come into a community. They didn't need that public engagement as much as they need it today. So and it, as little as 20 years ago, they could build really what they wanted to as long as it was playing by the rules with zoning. Today, they feel like they, it's a little give and take to get where they, what they want. Let me go over there and talk to David. So, David, how about that idea that there has to be some compromise on what developers are willing to do? I really thought sitting in the back row would help me avoid this. <laughs> yeah. Developers are in this game to make money. And if you expect them to compromise, and that compromise involves not making money, you can talk a lot, but nothing's ever going to happen. Uh, I think it's impossible right now to build affordable housing. Uh, when I talk to apartment developers, the lowest number I hear right now is like 250 bucks a square foot. Well, that makes a thousand square foot two-bedroom apartment, you know, 200,000 bucks a unit. Okay, I'm working on a project in Duluth right now where the planning number is 450 dollars a square foot. That translates to an apartment cost of $4,000. Well, $2,000 or $4,000 in this group, none of that is affordable. Now, you can dump a ton of money at a project, and you might get it done. And it's probably what it takes right now. Uh, the projects that we're looking at, apartments in Silver Bay, involve dumping a ton of money at it. Okay, That's probably what it's going to take, and I think we're desperate enough to consider doing that. Um, Silver Bay is kind of unique. We have a lot of affordable housing. It's a bunch of houses that were built by the mine 70 years ago, and their prices have doubled lately, but you can still buy a house in Silver Bay for 140 grand. In my world, that's affordable housing compared to anywhere else. The other thing Silver Bay has going for it is we have somewhere between 125 and 150 seniors living alone in a single-family house. That's going to change relatively quickly, okay? And that if that housing can turn around to be available to workers and families, we've got a ready-made solution. If that in turn turns into people from the cities, they're buying the second cabin in Silver Bay to enjoy the trailing system, it, it doesn't work. But I think the solution is to try to build something that the people that have some wealth in Silver Bay that are living in a house below their means help them move into that. Affordability is less of a concern there. And then if we can do things to have that home that's available be available to someone who homestead it or someone who's a worker in the community, that's where my mind is going to thinking about how, what, how, what, the, what tools does government have to influence who can buy a home. And we know the kind of people we want. We want people with kids in school, and we want workers. But how we influence that, uh, I'm still working on. That was valuable. Um, when you say dump a lot of money into it, do you mean state, city government dump a lot of money into it, or who? When you're talking about these developing these projects. Well, I'm not an expert in, in state funding programs, but I understand there's a lot of money available out there. What I am an expert in, it's taxpayer money. But one way or the other, it's either federal money, state money, or local money. Uh, 
Tax increment financing is something I've done a lot of in my career. Okay, Tax increment financing will enable government to pay to 10 15% of the cost of the project, something in that range. Get IRRR money or some of the state money that's coming around. Maybe we can get uh, as much as 25% of the cost of a project funded with non-developer dollars. Well, that starts to take a $2,000 a month unit and gets it down to a, you know, uh, million, uh, 1.4,000 a month or something like that. Is that affordable? That's going to be the new affordable, I think. That's probably what it's going to take to work. I just want to come back over here since you are my go-to for the evening. Um, we're back with Jason. Um, so what do you think when you hear David say you really can't build affordable housing these days? <laughs> Tom's waving at me. Uh, uh, yes. Okay. So somebody made the comment earlier, like affordable. There are technical definitions right. talking about HUD, and the funding programs will dictate what that means, right? So usually in the housing industry, it's AMI, area median income, some percentage of that. There's different thresholds, but parking all of that jargony stuff. Um, there is no, we kind of get hit with it uh, two ways in rural communities. Um, one, it costs just as much up here to build, sometimes more, 10% more than Minneapolis in a lot of cases, which surprises people. Uh, and then on the other side of it, uh, our incomes are lower. So it costs more to build. The developer, owner, op, um, uh, operator can rely on less rent, so the gap gets bigger. The things like TIF and, and other local resources, Minnesota Housing Finance, all these things that are coming forward, those are parts of the solution, but it's not sustainable. Every year that I've done this for the last eight years, give or take, I've been like, it can't keep going up. And it's gone up every year. The costs have gone up. So, so there is, like, what we're doing is not working. Um, the money we need, for sure, we have to rethink how we do housing in this state. Honestly, like, l largely. We're not, the trades are not increasing as fast as we need them to. We need to think about how we do permitting design, how we do replication of, of building projects, like I mentioned. Like, if we want to make a big, big dent. Now, we can do the ADUs and we can do the, the programs that this gentleman was talking about, which are fantastic, and I'm trying to help that in our community, too. But that, if we're talking about 300,000 units, which is the projection in Minnesota over the next eight years or so, that, that's, there's a scaling problem we have that we have to think a little bigger and more creative about. Lacey wanted to say, and then I will be right back to you, Kathy. Um, yes, Lacey. Well, I was thinking that we haven't yet talked about morality or ethics. And I have an anecdote of a couple of friends who were having a hard time buying a house in Ely individually. And they were able to form an LLC and buy a lakeside property um, from a couple who were willing to sell to them regardless of the fact that they were offered cash offers. And these people who were willing to do something really unique in choosing the, the choice that fit their values for their community. And, you know, we talked to our friends. We're like, oh, this is so cool. Let's talk about how innovative you are. And they're like, we're not innovative. We're landlords. You know, like, but what's innovative is those people who sold to us, those people who are willing to forego a cash offer, forego a bigger offer, because they saw a group of five friends who live and work in our community, in the schools, nonprofit organizations, teaching music, serving kids, you know, that nurse practitioners, 
um, those folks were able to do something really unique because someone chose them. And I think that this whole conversation is lacking a shared understanding of what morals we want to move forward with. I'm Carrie Miller, and you've been listening to The Rural Voice, a town hall series in the rural Midwest. For more information on the series and our 2024 season, go to ruralvoice.org.